Outspoken with Joy Silver is presented by Harcourt's Desert Homes. Scott Palermo and James Sanick will be here in a few minutes to share more about their superpowers when it comes to helping you with your real estate needs. We're thrilled to have them on board. You'll find them at harcourtsdeserthomes.com. People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Welcome to our show today. We are on Outspoken with our guest, William Spivey, a graduate of Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, who writes about history, race, education, and politics, often how they relate to each other. He says, how I wish I knew then what I know now. We're going to be talking about the white supremacist agenda, the KKK, then and now. Welcome. Welcome, William. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for having me on. Uh, so I wish I knew then what I know now. I almost want to start right there with you. Tell us, what does that mean? Well, you know, gone through life, and there's so much that I didn't even start to pick up on until I was in my 30s and 40s. And, you know, you, you go through life wondering about different situations you find yourself in, and is it this and is it that? And uh, the answer is, it's always that. It's always that. <laughs> That's very good. I like it. Uh, I, you do so much writing, um, and I'm an avid reader of your writing, and so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest. Our listeners will be very excited to hear about your information and your point of view. Um, and tell tell us more about the KKK and what the origin was and where they are today and how that kind of sets the agenda for what we're watching. Well, when the KKK started, they were more of a reactionary force. And they started in the uh, 1860s, right after the Civil War ended and, and emancipation. And it was a reaction to black people being free from enslavement and the feeling that they were losing something of their own that they were entitled to, that they were going to lose jobs, they lost income from and revenue because slaves were the heart of the economy and uh, they felt like that people were taking something from them which is as much true today as it was then mm. and there's been three different waves of the Klan uh, back in the 1860s uh, around 1920 1915-1920 when uh, Birth of a Nation came out and I think it reinvigorated people because you saw a Klan uh, portrayed the crime portrayed much like superheroes mm-hmm. and how they saved us at a time. And then the third wave was uh, during the civil rights era when again they felt like something was being taken from them. And uh, I submit that there's a fourth wave going on right now that's in reaction to uh, the election of the first black president. That was just you know, a bridge too far. Well, it's a blacklash as I've as I've seen it written and heard. Let me get, let me zero back into the first rendition uh, right after the um, the Civil War. That particular rendition of the the KKK was not identified with Christianity, as I understand it. Would that be accurate? That's pretty true. And at that point in time, they were pretty much focused on uh, 
retaliating against black people. Mm-hmm. And later renditions got into Catholics and Jews and Muslims and Arabs and everybody else. But uh, at that particular time, it was uh, literally a bunch of drunk soldiers sitting around <laughs> on Christmas Eve, uh, you know, saying, woe is me and what are we going to do about this? <laughs> it's kind of a roving band of militias, actually. Uh, and I think there's quite the parallel to that. But that sounds more like militia uh, construction. But then in um, when Birth of a Nation, I, I often myself call Birth of a Nation the Facebook of its time. And uh, because all of those technologies of film, these were all new technologies that were used in terms of creating a propaganda and creating a, a narrative that people became familiar with as as if it were truth. Yeah, and uh, each different version of the Klan became bolder, and it became more and more acceptable to be part of it. Uh, at first, you know, it was a nighttime hide-behind-your-sheets-and-hoods. Mm. Uh, when Birth of a Nation came out, there was, you know, it was shown in the White House, and people went to see it, and, you know, sometimes dressed up to go see it like you see people in cosplay today uh, and by the time you got to i think 1926 they had a march on washington uh where thousands you know they say it was like 20 to 50,000 clan members marched on washington in full regalia and there was the streets were lined with people cheering them on and you know we look at today it's quite acceptable to be you know not quite racist but, you know, wear it like a badge of honor. As long as you can deny it's racism, you can do whatever you want. How does the apartment, this is something I, uh, I really want you to weigh in on for our listeners and for myself as well. How does oppressing people become a philosophy of liberty? Well, I think there's two different groups that are involved. There's the leaders and the followers. Mm. And the followers... Uh, are motivated more or less by hate and repression and putting somebody down because their feeling is that by weighing somebody down, it, it lifts them up. Now, the leadership, it might be as much about class as it is about race. And, you know, they're looking at it from an income standpoint, from a revenue standpoint, and that if they can maintain a, uh, a, a labor force that doesn't receive as much pay, that you don't have to provide the benefits for, that ultimately it will benefit them. And I think that rich people, like the leaders of the Klan, have always been able to convince somebody that they were doing something that was in their interest when it really wasn't, and it really benefited somebody else. Oh my gosh, I think we've seen a lot of that going on today. <laughs> the parallels are, are, are astonishingly similar. I know when we read the decree and the order, of some of the original documents for membership to the KKK. It, it reads as if it could be today's uh, Fox News commentator. I mean, it's just incredibly not any different. <laughs> it's uh, quite similar. And I think what you're zeroing in on is also very important. How do, how do those at the top who are looking for cheap labor, um, looking uh, property because people were considered property. That's what the enslavement was about. How do they convince people to follow them against their own, what we think of as their own best interest? Uh, I'll get to that second. And I think the first things that the people at the top do 
is have to have control, and they do that through the votes in the courts. And they've done a fantastic job of filling the, the courts, the, especially at the federal and the Supreme Court level, with enough people to be able to enforce their will. And if you look at the history of the nation, the Supreme Court has always uh, weakened civil rights and uh, every civil rights and voting rights act that was ever passed, and there have been a whole lot more than you might imagine, has ultimately been weakened or declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And we're about to see the same thing happen with affirmative action. But, uh, it, you know, they find a way, either through the law or even disregarding the law or precedent, to do what is the will of their people. And you can't get to be a member of the Supreme Court, you know, even the, the ones of, of color or even the liberals, without being, you know, of a certain economic status, without having gone to certain institutions for the most part, and having, because you have to go through the Senate to get vetted, uh, that you have to say the right things and promise to do the right things to make sure that, you know, no matter who is on the Supreme Court, you're going to end up uh, maintaining the status quo. So we're getting into this subject um, about how government can be overrun by particular philosophies. And we were talking about those who have power and money and how they influence the court system and also government and vetting and confirmation by the Senate. And I think this is something that we saw happen after the Civil War. And I think there were quite a number of mistakes made that and that enshrined some of the political mechanisms uh, for methodology for doing this back then. Can you talk a little bit about the parallels of what happened historically and what's happening today? Well, historically, and if you can start even before the Civil War, if you look at the founding of our country, that we were set up to empower rich white men. And at the, at the beginning of our country, only rich white men could vote. And only white men with land could vote. Um, so it ensured, you know, pretty much you had to have a certain amount of, uh, of income and, and, and equity in our system. And they were the ones that were passing the laws. The initial uh, Supreme Court, uh, most of them were slaveholders. Mm-hmm. And it was in their personal interest to make sure that, that slavery continued as a, as, a, as a system because their personal income depended on it. And starting with the, uh, with the Constitution, um, there's an Article 1, Section 9, Clause 9, Section 1, where it talks about the end of the international slave trade, which could not take place before 20 years after the, the passing of the Constitution. And people today, a lot of historians will try to make that sound like it was a prelude to ending enslavement, that if you can get rid of the international slave trade, you're starting to get rid of slavery. But actually, the opposite was true. What they were doing was protectionism to make sure that the the domestic slaves fetched a higher price, and it caused them to, it opened up the door for uh, forced breeding mm. and rape of of enslaved women, uh, so that they could produce the amount of product to sell 
further south, and there were states that had excess slaves like Virginia and Maryland and Delaware because they had pretty much uh, ruined the, the land by not rotating crops and taking care of the acreage, and tobacco was very harsh on the, on the land. Um, so they had extra slaves that they then made the price go up by forbidding the uh, international slave trade, and therefore the price of domestic slaves went up, and they were able to profit. And uh, that included uh, Thomas Jefferson, who, who made that happen as president, in uh, 1808. Well, this is quite uh, a different point of view on what American history is about, surely. Uh, This dream of democracy was basically talking about democracy for the landed gentry, actually. And that seemed to be the, the, the greatest piece of what our history is based on. So I think this is quite surprising to, and maybe it's almost unbelievable to people who really don't see this kind of an economic breakdown and and don't realize that indeed even they are being oppressed and backing these kinds of ideas up actually works not in the interest of the greatest number of people nor the greatest number of, of common good. Uh, yep. So where did that take us now? I mean, this idea, and I recently came across some information, too, about George Washington and his whole situation about slave ownership. So the country was basically built on this concept, and um, the way you've broken it down was very helpful. What happened then during the Civil War? How did we get to the place where this was no longer going to be tolerated, but yet the powers were kept where they are? Now, the the Civil War um, was not about freeing slaves. It was about maintaining the the Union and keeping those southern states because the North depended as much as upon the economy of the South as as the the South depended on their slaves to make it happen. And Lincoln was perfer- perfectly content to let slavery maintain as an institution until the point where states started succeeding from the Union. So it was at that point that he issued the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, um, which only affected those states that had succeeded from the nation. If you were in a state that did not succeed, slavery was maintained in those states. And uh, so only in states that were already said we're leaving did uh, they say that those, those slaves were free, but only if they could get to a free state, they had to escape from their their captors and get to a free state in order to be free. Mm. And they did it for two reasons. One was to disrupt the economy of the South. And the other was to uh, keep France and Britain from entering into the war on the side of the South because they were trade partners with the South and they depended on cotton from the South as, as much as anybody else. So it was kind of a um, practical thing as opposed to uh, something that was a, a goal. Now, I don't want to belittle the goals of the uh, Republican Party at that time, which it sounds like I'm talking about a whole different party, and I am. And you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that they did have a goal of abolition in freeing the slaves. Now, that didn't mean they wanted the slaves to be their social equals or their neighbors or attend their schools. Uh, and, in fact, uh, Lincoln had a plan to send the freedmen to uh, either Liberia or Central America because his view of a house divided was such that the slaves would never forgive white people for 
the institution of slavery and it'd be impossible for them to get along. Hmm. But it took when he tried to convince black leaders of his plan and Frederick Douglass and others said, no, that's not going to work. We built this country. We're going to stay here. Um, that he had to work around that and he didn't live long enough to see what it would take to get to get around it. We'll continue the conversation with our guest, William Speedy, and talking about the white supremacist agenda, the KKK, then and now. But first, we want to welcome aboard our new title sponsor, Harcourt's Desert Homes. Hello, I'm Scott Palermo. And I'm James Sanak. We'd like to take a moment to share with you our unique and successful approach to working with Coachella Valley home buyers, sellers, and real estate investors. Our goal is to build a people-first brokerage, and a significant part of that is making certain that our customers can always count on working with quality, like-minded agents. At Harcourt's Desert Homes, James, myself, and our extraordinary team of dedicated real estate professionals are privileged to work with the best clients through our commitment to personal service and attention to a client's every detail. That commitment is how we have achieved the honor of being ranked to the top 1% of realtors in the desert cities. We have been named to the best of the best realtors in the Coachella Valley by Palm Springs Life magazine. Scott mentioned the word unique a moment ago, but it's not just a marketing buzzword for Harcourt's Desert Homes. In fact, it's our superpower for helping clients worldwide. Harcourt's International is one of the half dozen most successful real estate companies around the globe with more than $34 billion in annual revenue. And it's the unique selling proposition that led us to affiliate our brokerage with Harcourt's here in the Coachella Valley. That's right, James, Harcourt's Auctions. This platform separates our brand from the rest of the pack. Think of this as a marketing tool similar to Christie's Art Auction in New York City. Just as with other luxury items and fine art, Harcourt's Auction sells luxury real estate to high net worth consumers. For more than six years, our brokerage has won more than 100 sales production awards. We'd love to put that achievement to work for you. We specialize in properties in Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert, Indian Wells, and La Quinta. If we can help you, please reach out to us at 760-864-4100. Again, that's 760-864-4100. Or visit Harcourt's Desert Homes online at harcourtsdeserthomes.com. That's H A R. C-O-U-R-T-S, deserthomes.com, Harcourt's Desert Homes. We're located at 119 North Indian Canyon Drive in downtown Palm Springs. Remember, in in real estate, estate, knowledge knowledge is power. Our guest, William Spivey, is talking about the white supremacist agenda, and we were just talking about the Civil War, and right after the Civil War, which was called the Reconstruction or the deconstruction, as I often think about it, but we were talking about the reconstruction. What happened after the Civil War that solidified the government's position in white supremacy? Well, there was a... Immediately after the Civil War, even before Reconstruction, uh, the the states that uh, had to pass the 13th Amendment in order to rejoin the Union, uh, which freed the slaves immediately passed a lot of black codes, which in a sense reinstituted slavery uh, for a lot of people. 
that uh, if you didn't have proof that you had a job, if you, that you didn't have income and whatever, that they could you know, basically send you back to, in some cases, the very same plantation that you were freed from. And you had curfews. You had a lot of different rules that applied for which the penalty was always going back to work as almost a slave. Um, so, you know, slavery ended theoretically uh, at the end of the Civil War, um, but uh, it took a while for things to, to sink in. And then the Klan, with the rise of the Klan, uh, it took the federal government to uh, step in and enforce the, the Klan Acts in, 19, in 1871. And, uh, there were a, f a few of them, which basically sent federal troops to uh, forced to you know keep the Klan in check, and they almost wiped out the first reign of the Klan. And then came Reconstruction, and you know things went well for a while. But then there was a, a contested presidential election in 1876, where uh, Rutherford B. Hayes was the Republican, and they were supposed to be the good guys at that time, and. Uh, he was losing to the Republican, uh, to, excuse me, to the Democrat. The Democrats had all of the electrical, electoral votes they needed, with the exception of one, huh. with three states undecided, and they had the popular vote. But the, Rep the Democrats agreed to let the Republicans keep the presidency if they agreed to remove the, the federal troops, and that was the Compromise of 1877. And when the federal troops were removed... Uh, that was the end of Reconstruction, because immediately the Democrats, who were the bad guys um, at that time, um, they basically sometimes they killed elected office, elected officials. They scared them out of office. They kept them from from running, and they controlled the elections and the votes, such that you know all those well the several black elected officials that were in Congress. And in some had won even statewide election in Mississippi and Florida. Um, they were they were gone, and we went back to all white electorate, elected officials in the South for a period of a long period of time. With the uh, compromise of 1877 came Jim Crow, mm -hmm. which lasted until the 1960s. Wow! So 1960s, and I, I almost feel that many of the the original precepts. I mean, the um, the advent of, of of wrapping the Klan into Christianity with the cross burning, and, and that was really um, their their creed was to keep the country Protestant, uh, uh, keep keep America Protestant. I read in one of their credos, and. This became the rationale. It, it, it reminds me of, you know, the Crusades, <laughs> when the Crusades happened. And I, I often make a parallel between what happened in the Crusades and what was happening with the Klan. And it's almost, from my point of view, the same, the same thinking, the same philosophy of the time. Um, and what, what strikes me is that after the Civil War, unlike what happened in Germany, then you had statues erected to those Confederate soldiers who died. I mean, I, I imagined that um, the uh, the Confederate flag that we're most familiar with uh, must have that same symbi symbology that the Nazi swastika flag has for Jewish people, and yet you don't see that in Germany, but for certainly for a long time, that particular flag was embedded in many states' flags, certainly in the South. 
What is happening today that parallels that time period that you see going on? And I, and I do want to just say first that the Confederate statues and monuments, that most of them didn't come right after the Civil War. They sort of coincided with the second wave of the Klan. A lot of those were not built in like 1865, but in like 1920 uh, in, in that era. So it became when it became a, a popular thing to do uh, to basically relive the, the, the great era of the South and uh, let, let it rise again. Um, today, uh, you're seeing uh, the impact on education where it's, it's almost impossible to teach anything about race that, that makes people feel bad. And by people, I mean certain white people, not all white people, but uh, they've made the claim that critical race theory is being taught to, to kindergartners and grade schoolers when it is not. And they're basically ensuring that uh, nothing is being taught about race that makes white people feel bad. Uh, and that's a little different than what had been going on for decades, especially in Texas, um, where they were taught a revisionist history and taught that uh, slavery was like a, a job choice. And, uh, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and there's just so much about history that has been, you know, besides the, the, the voting and the judges, they're also trying to control education. And now you're seeing an effort being made to control school boards and uh, ban books in a lot of cases. There's books being banned across the country, particularly uh, by black authors and LBGTQ. And that there's just so much going on, and it's not even looked, on, looked down upon to do it. Mm. Well, William... We're going to have to have you back on this show because this is not this conversation is not going away so quickly as we can see. And I want to I'm thank you. Not. Thank you today for coming on the show Outspoken. And I hope we will have you on soon again. And thank you to our listeners. This has been Joy Silver. And this has been William Spivey on the White Supremacist Agenda. Outspoken with Joy Silver has been presented by Harcourt's Desert Homes, specializing in properties in Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage, Palm Desert, Indian Wells, and La Quinta. Click on the link from Radio111.com for more information.